Hi there. Welcome. Thanks for stopping by. And uh, I'm Josh. This is Dharma Punks, New York. The I every time before I teach, I meditate, and today I think I must have dozed off because I'm a little slow on the uptake. So yeah, if you'd like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, everything I do is entirely by donation, and uh, so you can use Venmo. Dharma Punks with an X NYC. And the PayPal site is on the website, Dharma Punks with an X NYC.com. So thanks for any support you can offer. And uh, tonight I'm going to do part two or a follow up to last week's talk on Buddhism and attachment theory. And yet last week we, we focused on the different types of attachment structures, secure, anxious slash ambivalent or preoccupied. And then on the other side of dismissive, avoidant, and finally disorganized. And we talked about uh, different strategies to repair or move us towards secure, earned secure attachment. And there was a bunch of strategies we reviewed for that. This week, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the neurobiology of love and attachment. And we're going to be looking at it through the prism of some very modern insights afforded to us by contemporary neurologists like Stephen Porres, Borges and uh, other uh, famous clinicians such as Alan Shore, Dan Siegel, Louis Casalino, etc. And uh, we'll also be using some of the insights of Barbara Fredrickson. And we'll be talking about what it is that love provides or what are the underpinnings of love, I should say, in our bodies and um, how we can use our bodies to determine whether we are in a healthy relationship. And we'll also have some Buddhist practice to increase the likelihood of knowing when a relationship is secure. So I hope this sounds interesting. So relax, find a really comfortable seated position, and I'll just jump right in. To understand this talk, it's important to have a basic grasp of the human autonomic nervous system when we do the foundations and the functions of love and attachment become very clear. So our nervous system has three settings, each of which provide us with a lot of protective characteristics. So the oldest setting of our nervous system is very ancient. It goes back hundreds of millions of years, and it's present in all of our reptilian ancestors, fish and um, other species have this system as well. It's the ancient parasympathetic nervous system. And it's very useful. It's kind of like the brakes 
for our nervous system. It slows down heartbeats. It allows us to rest and digest. And it is essential for healing from illness and um, from injury. However, when we're overly frightened and stressed, this ancient system, which rests upon what's known as the dorsal vagus nerve, the uh, nerve that controls the lower uh, organs of the body, can limit our mobility, initiating a freeze response, or what today we call a dissociative response. In it, we begin to shut down. We have difficulty forming thoughts. It can feel in a when it's not fully engaged, when we're experiencing depression, this ancient parasympathetic system can feel like we have the flu with weak muscles and an inability to uh, motivate ourselves. Dopamine is no longer secreted. It can give birth to impulses to retreat and isolate or in conflicts, this system is also what leads to fawning when we become compliant and we placate, even though we don't want to, when we lower our eyes, hunch forward, go into this trying to get very small and become very placating of people who, to people who are aggressive. So that's the earliest setting of the nervous system. The second setting, which is evolved hundreds of millions of years after the parasympathetic, is what's known as the sympathetic nervous system. And it's found throughout mammalian species. And the sympathetic is totally different from the parasympathetic, where the parasympathetic puts the brakes on the nervous system, slows us down, allows us to relax, can lead to shutdown and dissociation in extreme settings, but most of the time just helps us rest and digest. The sympathetic nervous system does the exact opposite. It mobilizes us to survive. It increases blood circulation, our heart rhythms increase, adrenaline is secreted, and over time, cortisol, the stress hormone. It provides us the energy to fight and flee in threats, but it's also there in very healthy domains as well when we play sports and sexual activity when people reach orgasm involves the sympathetic nervous system. When we're extremely anxious and worried, hypervigilant and threat detection, when we have racing thoughts that we can't stop, when we have insomnia, we're in the sympathetic nervous system for a prolonged period. There are many, many physical problems associated with being in this survival state for a long time when we're in the mobilized to survive. It leads to impaired immune function, digestive issues, respiratory problems, diabetes, increased risk of heart attack, stroke, and so forth, chronic fatigue. Pretty much all digestive issues outside of basic biochemistry, but many of the, the digestive issues that humans can uh, have chronic issues with involve the sympathetic nervous system. So that's the second. And once again, the oldest is the freeze, shut down, relax, uh, rest, digest, or an extreme threats, just play dead, freeze, dissociate. The second one is the opposite, mobilize, fight, flee to survive, get anxious, worried, hypervigilant, uh, take an action at all costs. That's like the gas of the nervous system. If the parasympathetic is the brake, the sympathetic is like the gas. 
And finally, the most recent setting of the nervous system also involves that parasympathetic, but it involved a new branch which developed in primates. That old shutdown brake system actually developed new nerves which went up from the heart and stomach upwards to the face so that we could express our internal states via our facial expressions. And it allowed us to orient our face towards safety cues in our environment. This new setting is often called the social engaged setting. It allows us to stay in a window of tolerance between sympathetic, mobilize, and the ancient shutdown, uh, you know, uh, immobilize, right between in this newer parasympathetic, we are in between, we're in this window of tolerance between the two. And it allows us to bond and connect with others, to be creative. It's what allows us to develop new skills. And in it, we can inhibit our fight, flight, freeze responses. All of them can be inhibited, and we can relax and connect with each other in this listening, open, relaxed window of tolerance. So once again, the third lies in between the mobilize response and the shutdown freeze dissociative response. It's right in between the two. The problem is if we go into this mobilized response for too long, the system shuts down and we go into the dissociative crash depression state. So once we understand this, it becomes pretty obvious that Connecting with others plays a significant role in keeping us in this healthiest window of tolerance, where we can relax, digest, where we can connect, where we feel safe, where we bond. As a social species, our nervous systems do not return to that window of tolerance when we're alone and in isolation even though we do have some ability to influence our nervous system, certainly on our own, but in prolonged emotional isolation or lack of real empathetic, intimate connection, our nervous systems move up towards that anxious, sympathetic mobilize where we start to become more and more triggered, worried, anxious, and then for some of us, eventually we shut down into depression. It's through connecting that we stay in that crucial social engage setting of the nervous system. It's only through contact with reliably available, emotionally attentive others that we can relax, develop new skills, achieve lasting, healthy state for our hearts, where we can grow as human beings, where we can uh, prosper. Emotion isolation in virtually all clinical studies leads to stress and increased mortality. So today's great, uh, most important clinical psychologists ranging from Dan Siegel and his works on interpersonal neurobiology and Alan Shore, his right brain psychotherapy and Stephen Porges in his neural love codes and Barbara Fredrickson in her great love 2.0 and Thomas Lewis in his general theory of love and in, uh, Louis Casalino's interpersonal neurobiology, all of them all together say the same thing, that love relies on what we could call moments of shared limbic resonance, 
moments of shared resonance, when our emotions synchronize with another, when we make eye contact, when we engage in touch, when we are nearby someone and we lock gazes and something about our expressions, our body language synchronize, then what happens very quickly is our biochemistry, our heart rates and our breath start to sync. And then our behaviors start to engage in tandem. We laugh at the same time. We relax. We uh, orient in the world at the same time. We begin our nervous systems synchronize and relax. And then finally, in that synchronization of our breathing, our body language, our eye contact, then finally there's this awareness of mutual care and dedication that we call love. So as uh, Thomas Lewis and Fari Amini and Barbara Fredrickson say, basically, love is when two people's biochemistries sync together through emotional correspondence, through eye contact, touch, nonverbal cues. The process of achieving health and well-being and regulating our nervous system starts right at birth. It's, this is the work of Alan Shore and so many others show that for the newborn, the first instinct is for touch. And over time, very early on, as little as one month into life, the baby starts searching for eye contact. Our brains expect that they will get their core needs met to set their nervous systems and body through contact with another. And this is in uh, Harry Harlow's uh, rather uh, depressing studies with monkeys, but he showed that monkeys almost invariably will choose um, mother figures that felt like an actual mother monkey rather than a wire monkey that would have milk. So we choose touch over nutrition. And Bowlby and countless zoologists, zoologists showed this as well. So this process of regulating our emotions and our biochemistry and our nervous systems through connection with others it relies on basically, we could say, four attributes of the caregivers. The first is just being reliably available. A caregiver who's reliably attentive, reliably present, provides a foundation of security that begins to regulate our nervous system. And then emotional attention, when a mother or father or caregiver uh, starts to pay attention and their emotions start to sync with the babies, then there's an added degree of security. And then when the caregiver is capable of comforting and soothing through touch and through a reassuring glance and through warmth and, and all the other nonverbal cues, then our nervous systems can definitely move back down from that mobilized anxious state to the window of tolerance. And the fourth characteristic is expressed delight. A caregiver that rewards our exploration and our development of new skills. So if you want to summarize these four uh, characteristics of attachment, it's we need to feel safe with another safe by meaning they're available, they're present, they're reliable. We need to feel seen, we need to feel soothed, and we need to feel appreciated. Safe, seen, soothed, and appreciated. So held in a relationship with a responsive caregiver or a therapist or a best friend or someone who um, is a wise spiritual fellow. Um, we engage in what could be called like a dance of connection 
where we fall sometimes out of connection and then we return reliably to it. We're not all the time seen, but there's this sense of a secure base that there's someone who, if anything scary, frightening, or overwhelming happens to us, there'll be someone we can return to. These connections don't have to be sustained. In fact, in the work of Fredrickson and others, it's very clear and Borges, it's very clear that these can be just micro moments, a half second of locking in with someone, making eye contact, having a subtle shift and synchronization of facial expression is enough to suddenly switch our nervous system back to this feeling of safety and health and, 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 uh, um, broadening and building our skill sets and so forth. So all of this leads to the obvious conclusion that healthy relationships, which keep us in the social engaged system, demand feelings of safety. We can live under the false impression that romantic relationships are based on excitement and attraction and fireworks meeting someone at a party where there's loud music, our skin tingling at their glance and our heart pumping and flirting and feeling anxious that they'll will lose their attention and making out and then moving quickly to hot sex. And all of that is putting us in our sympathetic nervous system. It's very possible to become passionately connected with another for sex or drama without actually experiencing the benefits of love, which means restoring ourselves to well-being, to have a partner who can constantly bring us back into this social engage, rest, digest, uh, growing, thriving state. People very often can be in relationships based on aggression, misunderstandings, escalating ultimatums. And these relationships can be very addictive because the sympathetic nervous system can trigger dopamine and can trigger adrenaline. And we just like we love scary movies and we love, I don't love them, but people love video games and people love stressful, exciting sporting events, the same system that makes those so addictive can make relationships devoid of safety feel so, so sticky and so, uh, so uh, difficult to leave. And if we, of course, have early relationships with caregivers that were based on unreliability, due to the nature of the right hemisphere, will likely gravitate towards people who are unreliable and will become addicted to that unreliability, that drama, the makeup and breakup and uh, coming back together and the, uh, all the, the uh, ups and downs, the roller coaster ride of emotions, all of which are ultimately unhealthy, all of which don't create real feelings of love and connection, all of which don't allow us to thrive as human beings. It's only when we're truly relaxed with another, when we don't have to put any effort into keeping our partner's attention, when we're freely able without any worry to express our internal states, our feelings, our concerns, our worries, our our sadness, our longings, our needs, without any worry that we'll lose eye contact or proximity. It's only when we can experience these forms of safety that we get the soothing warmth of oxytocin and vasopressin, those hormones that are characteristic of love and bonding, and which not only feel great and soothing, but actually are healthy, especially for the heart. If we're attached 
to someone that we're constantly neurocepting, and neurocepting means unconsciously aware of. If we're constantly unconsciously aware of inattentiveness, someone who's not really paying attention, or someone who's always, whose facial expressions are always on the verge of contempt or judgment or disinterest, as Gottman showed, um, we're going to be in an insecure bond that won't last. We'll wind up over time anxious, hypervigilant. We'll wind up with indigestion, insomnia. We'll wind up with feelings of not really having a home in our life. As Gottman's research showed in terms of these micro moments of attachment, relationships where partners respond to each other's bids for attention, and we're always sending out bids for attention these, it's only when our bids for attention are responded to 75% of the time with interest and with attentiveness and with kindness that couples thrive. Why are we sending out bids for attention all the time? Because our nervous systems need it. Our nervous systems, especially today, the more demands, the more responsibilities, the more overwhelming issues we face, the more our nervous systems seek attention from others to be regulated, to be restored to health. But if we constantly send out these bids for attention and our partners are inattentive or disinterested or too busy with something else or are judgmental or are disinterested, then what happens is we wind up more and more stuck in that sympathetic nervous system that mobilize that anxious, worried setting. And then over time we crash into depression and we give up. Our nervous systems fortunately help us evaluate if someone is a good partner. It's when you're with someone and you feel yourself relax and feel safe when they're around. It's You know you're in a good partnership when they evoke that feeling of being in, to a certain degree, your favorite place where you can your body just relaxes, where your muscles can release, where your heart starts beating slower, where you naturally don't feel your attention jumping around looking through threats. When our breathing will relaxes, when our out-breath becomes much longer, when it's easy to maintain eye contact, that's when we are in the process of connecting with someone that is worthwhile for us in the long term. Our nervous systems thrive with reliability and familiarity, and that's why it's essential in new relationships to take one's time, to go as slow as possible, to know someone before we push intimacy too quickly. If you do have your attachment system switched on by physical intimacy and sex, and there's not any familiarity or bond there, well, guess what? It's going to be awkward. It's going to be very, very awkward. And so the more we take care of ourselves and the more we are concerned about our emotional well-being and our happiness. And if we know we're the type of person that sometimes will start yearning for connection and emotional intimacy and regulation from others, we'll then start taking the process slower. When we've been in too many relationships that feature unmet bids for attention, unreliable connections, lack of attunement, which means lack of emotionally synchronized connection. When, our, when we don't have times where our disconnections are repaired by lying together, cuddling, touching, meeting each other's gazes, if we are constantly in insecure relationships, then over time, as we move into any new relationships, we'll revert into our sympathetic 
threat detection modes will stay up in that mobilized to survive state will constantly not only be looking for any signs of rejection, but will constantly be on a, you know, just uh, trigger happy to seek distance and run away, will become unable to discern meaningful signals of love from trivial gestures that mean nothing, or will mistake neutral comments for criticism and rejection because we're so heightened looking for threat detection. These kinds of uh, safety first states where we're seeking protection, not connection, are heightened when we feel too alone, when we have too many responsibilities, when we work for unpleasant or uh, unrewarding bosses, and when we're in relationships that just don't feature safety and connection. So the Buddha and his teachings on Mita talks about these very qualities of safety, having in our life what he called Kalyanamita, wise friends, people who can provide us with interest and attention Regardless, the Buddha says, whether we're revealing something that we feel ashamed about. I actually haven't looked at the Mita Sutta recently, but if you look at it on Access to Insight, you'll see it has the same characteristics as the qualities of secure attention. Somebody who's available, reliable, attentive, who's appreciative, sees your strengths and values and doesn't judge us when we make mistakes. And profoundly, the four Brahma-viharas, which are very central to the Buddha's teachings, um, the four divine states, create almost identical states as those feeling safe, seen, soothed, and appreciative. The four Brahma-viharas, which we'll practice tonight, and which Barbara Fredrickson has shown in her work, especially her book, Two, Love 2.0, which is uh, just uh, goes over her clinical research showing how people can restore their nervous systems into the, uh, the ventral vagal state. And the book goes into it in great detail. But she shows how the ancient Buddhist practice of unconditional friendliness, which is metta, karuna, which is compassion, mudita, which is appreciation for another's joy, and upekka, which is equanimity, staying balanced. These four characteristics create the same core emotional needs that we've that we've required all of our lives to stay in social engage again the feeling of being safe seen soothed and appreciated the phrases of the brahma viharas are may you be happy which is metta unconditional friendliness may you be free of stress and suffering which is the phrase for for karuna, compassion. May you enjoy the rewards of your good deeds, which is appreciation, appreciation without jealousy or envy. And many say it's the most difficult of the Brahma-viharas. And finally, may you have the wisdom to make good choices. So may you be happy May you be free of stress and suffering. May you enjoy the rewards of your good deeds. And may you have the wisdom to make good choices. And as we practice this meditation, we're going to practice sending the exact same feelings and nonverbal cues as well as the phrases themselves that transmit to others the foundations of love. And we'll also send these characters characteristic sentiments to ourselves. So this will be both for ourselves and for others. So my throat's about to blow out, so I'm going to lead us in the actual meditation. But I hope something in tonight's talk was uh, 
worthy of your attention, and I hope you'll stick around for the meditation. So find the most comfortable seated position, and really, if you want to lie down or sit in a really comfortable, or lie down on a couch, or lie back in a really comfortable chair, that's fine. So take a nice, full, rewarding in-breath as you close your eyes, and then the long, complete exhalation. You might be interested to know that inhalations switch on the sympathetic or activate the sympathetic nervous system. And exhalations actually trigger the parasympathetic, the rest and digest, and the foundations of putting the brakes on. So in meditation, we necessarily focus on exhalations. We want to slow the system down. We want to put the brakes on any worry or anxiety or stress. And no, there's no way to excessively put the parasympathetic and switch us into shutdown or dissociation. That only happens when we've been in chronic stress or are overwhelmed and uh, feel completely uh, at the mercy of overwhelming conditions. But in a meditation, Long exhalations simply relax and restore and switch us to social engage. So try to slow down the breath and bring your attention if it's still wandering in external sensations around you. Just try to bring your awareness back to the sensations of the breath in your body, wherever they become most um, present. I generally feel the inhalations as an upward movement from my abdomen to my chest, the chest expanding. So the energy in my body moves up and the chest expands. And then the exhalation, which is parasympathetic, which relaxes, I feel is this downward movement using the vagal nerve. There's this sense of the organs of the vagus nerve relaxing the heart and the abdomen, the stomach muscles, I should say. So one good practice to restore us into this state of safety is to count our breaths. So you can count inhalations or exhalations up to five, and then back down from five to one. Or use any other counting strategy that you've learned over time. If it's difficult for you to stay with your breath, that's okay. You can develop soothing safety states where you return yourself to a degree back to towards social engage by just listening to the sounds around you without 
latching on or holding on, just listen to the sounds in your environment as if they're a foreign symphony from another planet or from another culture you've never heard before and you're just present with the sounds without any resistance or clinging. Or you can visualize, if you want, a place in your mind where you feel truly safe. Orienting towards a safety cue in your mind, a beach, on a warm, relaxing day with the sounds of waves or just feeling your body relax into the sand or swaying in a hammock in the woods or in the mountains or perhaps driving through a vast desert landscape, any place that evokes a sense of wonder and comfort. And if you find your mind gets baited by thoughts, and thoughts are like baits that can lure us and then hook us, and then before we know it, where our bodies are tense and tight, contracted, and generally we go off towards worries or ruminating or preoccupations. When you notice that, just note what kind of thought or what thought was important to you at that moment, and then just make a note that you'll return to it once the meditation is concluded. Just return yourself back to the practice without any criticism or judgment. It's actually wonderful to become aware we've been lost in thought because it's in that moment we experience a kind of awakening. So always make the return as pleasant and enjoyable as you can, offering yourself a smile or a nice refreshing breath or relaxing, finding muscles in your body that are still tense and relax them. Return to that pleasant visual. So we'll just sit here silently for a while.
So at this point, we can move to the Brahma Vihara practice. Or if you'd like, you can stay in the practice that you've been working with. So for this practice, I'd invite you to bring to mind for someone who's been any form of reliable support or mentor, a figure that you've turned to at any point in your life for care, for kindness, for guidance. Just bring to mind the image of this figure, this individual, And we'll just practice these four qualities, developing these four qualities. So if you can, either either visualize them in your mind's eye or just think their name. And may you be happy. Even if this individual is no longer alive, we use these phrases, may you be happy. Try to feel an emotion or at least transmit this wish with some sincerity so you can lock into these words and what they transmit. May you be happy. May you be free of stress and suffering. That soothing and compassion. May you enjoy the rewards of your good deeds and that's appreciation without jealousy or envy. May you enjoy the rewards of your good deeds so we're not wishing happiness to ill-begotten endeavors but for the good deeds, the hard work, the efforts that accrue positive fruits for someone. Finally, may you have the wisdom to make good choices. May you have the wisdom to make good choices. And now, Bring to mind someone with whom you'd like to develop a secure bond or someone with whom you have. A partner, a close friend, an ally, any figure that you would turn to for feeling seen and soothed and appreciated. Just hold their image or name in mind. Once again, may you be happy. May you be free of stress and suffering. May you enjoy the rewards of your good deeds. May you have the wisdom to make good choices. Try to feel each phrase. How would you transmit these thoughts earnestly? How would you feel them 
sincerely. If you want, we can activate that parasympathetic by putting a hand on our heart center, bring this back into greater degree of social engage. May you be happy. May you be free of stress and suffering. May you enjoy the rewards of your good deeds. May you have the wisdom to make good choices. And now I'd like you or invite you to bring an image of yourself into your mind. Any image that you hold of yourself. If you can't visualize yourself, just the feeling of your body can be the recipient of the Brahma Viharas. So sending to yourself these wishes, may you be happy. May you be free of stress and suffering. May you enjoy the rewards of your good deeds. May you have the wisdom to make good choices. Wishing all these qualities for yourself. And finally, we're going to do this one more time. But if you'd like, either keep the image of yourself as it reflects how you might look today, or you could bring up an image of yourself in childhood, any image of yourself that you might associate it with a time when you needed these qualities of care, but they weren't available. If you can, keep a heart, hand on your heart center. Doing, in some way, visualizing your inner child. May you be happy. May you be free of stress and suffering. May you enjoy the rewards of your good deeds. And may you have the wisdom to make good choices. With that, let go of the image of yourself. And just taking your time very slowly open your eyes and return awareness to the world around you, but try to bring those same qualities of care and soothing and compassion and appreciation to the world around you.